Amen. Thank you, Miss Sarah, Miss Heidi. Appreciate that much. Grab your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter number 9, Romans chapter number 9. Hope you're able to grab a prayer bulletin on the back of which is our outline. And so if you did not, Brother Ryan's going to make his way down the middle aisle here. We'd love for you to grab one, follow along with us here. Just a uh, kind of a simple outline tonight, not a ton to it. And so just a few blanks for you to fill in as we continue in Romans chapter number 9. And uh, we've already covered verses 1 through 3. And then last week, we we're looking at verses 4 and 5. And if you need an outline, just get Brother Ryan's attention. He'll be glad to get you one. And uh, we're moving into a section, Romans chapter 9 through chapter 11, that gives us a lot of detail about God's dealings with uh, Israel, but uh, that's in the minutia of it, the minutia of it. In a greater sense, he's helping us to understand the character of God, his sovereignty and election and choosing and how he works and things like that. And so I'm really excited about getting into this. It it is a little deeper than maybe uh, what some of the previous chapters have been. He Paul seems to get beginning progressively deeper with the, the doctrines and the teachings and things like that. And, and this is certainly the case, but I believe it certainly with the Holy Spirit's help, we'll understand it and grasp some of the truth he's trying to teach us. So last week we began understanding this and we looked at Israel's privileged past. That's uh, verses 4 and 5. Notice it. He's speaking of his kinsmen, those he referred to in verse number 3, the ones he has a heart to see saved, who are Israelites, verse 4, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. We reflected on and and we considered, appreciated the blessings, each of these blessings last week. We kind of broke it down what Paul meant by his mentioning each one and each phrase. And certainly the ending one is the reality that Jesus Christ uh, was born through the Israel. For unto us is born. And that was honestly written by an Israelite to Israelites. Uh, initially, for unto us is born the Savior. And such was the case. Messiah was coming through the Jewish lineage. And so it's a great blessing, their greatest blessing. And yet those blessings and the amazing heritage and lineage uh, that Israel enjoys, it enhances their responsibility. The Bible teaches a clear principle. Many of you are, you, you and I, many of us are recipients of great blessings. And the Bible says, to whom much is given, much more is required, expected. So, so it is for Israel. Israel had all these blessings. Paul has just uh, delineated them and shown them and, and spelled them out for us. They had been given so much, how? Through the sovereign choice of God to call them His people, a chosen nation. But they failed. They rejected not only God, but they even rejected His law in its entirety. They rejected His leadership. They, they wanted an earthly king instead of just a heavenly king. They, uh, they rejected the promised Messiah. And yet, with such a heritage, the impetus upon them was to embrace Jesus Christ. Reality is this, and some of us just got done studying him in in Sunday school. You know what Israel should have responded to Jesus Christ? As soon as Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, the entirety of the nation of Israel should have shown up, and they should have joined Thomas in simply saying, my Lord and my God. They should have bowed the knee. They should have been there and exalting him and decrying that this is the Messiah. He is the one, the deliverer, the redeemer, the promised one. And yet they did not. 
So that is why here in Romans chapter 9, we have these two wonderful verses that really elicited within the Jew uh, pride. And boy, their chest fills up at reading that, and they are a blessed nation, a blessed people. And boy, you read all those things, man, I'm proud to be a Jew. But then Paul has to write verses 6 and 7. And he kind of deflates that. Notice it. Look at verse 6 with me. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. You want to riddle tonight? They are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Verse 7, neither because they are of the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That's an interesting statement. We're going to explain it, but here's the point, and here's what he's getting at, and let's understand context, okay? So uh, just add a little bit more to the, our, our robust understanding of these chapters. When we read and understand these blessings that Israel has enjoyed, let's step back a moment and see exactly where Israel is. Israel was established as a nation, most of us know, 1948 approximately, as the land was inhabited, and they got some of the land. Then in 1967, at the end of the Six Days War, as many of those surrounding nations declared war on Israel, God providentially protected them and gave them a miraculous victory. I'd encourage you, if you like history, study it. Some of the most amazing stories of God's intervention uh, were during the Six Days War, 1967. It's amazing, isn't it? In our generation and in our time, God showed himself strong from enemies in, in airplanes, thinking they're seeing all kinds of other airplanes that never existed. The Israeli Air Force was very minute and small, and yet they said the, the sky was filled with them down there they saw tanks and soldiers and yet there were no israeli tanks and soldiers there amazing stories came out of that and god delivered and provided for the nation as a whole and in doing so they not only uh, were able to fight off their enemies the fact is they actually got more control of land they gained more land in fact probably the greatest aspect of that was jerusalem and now they're in full control of Jerusalem, and we certainly see the turmoil and the Palestinians trying to regain that back and so forth and so on. So there is Israel. But the reality is this, though that is the case in Israel's history, just even recently, is pretty amazing. And we would say this, they are back in the right place, physical position uh, that they should be. They are not where they ought to be spiritually. So as the nation has come back to the promised land and God has done an amazing thing of restoring that, listen, they are far from being where they need to be spiritually. They have not gotten to that point where uh, as we read much in the prophecies and things uh, of what's going to happen eventually among the nation. We would put it this way, and you see it on your outline there. Today, Israel as a nation is not a theocracy. So don't, let's not confuse our... Uh, let's not con- uh, um, uh, let's not fool ourselves, okay? Let's not confuse our thinking and say, oh, Israel's back in the land, and boy, Israel's just such a godly nation. The reality is this. Israel as a state today, as a nation, is a secular nation. Okay, so don't ever think, because we, we obviously are excited for Israel. We're, pro, we're pro-Israel. We want Israel to be blessed because we know Revelation and how they are restored in many ways and things. But let's not mess up our thinking and think, well, Israel's just a great nation today. It's not a great nation today. They still need to get right with God. Okay, so understanding that and understanding how bad it is, the fact is that they're not a theocracy. They're not looking to God. They're not focused on God as a nation, nor do they want to be governed by God. They're not looking at his law and, and who he is and what he has given to them in the past in any way uh, or form. 
In fact, if you were to go interview Jews in Israel, you would find many of them are atheistic. You would find some that are literally anti-God, but living in even Jerusalem, but Israel, the nation. Um, the state itself em- embraces secular abominations and practices. Can, can I just give you a glimpse into what the nation of Israel is even today? Notice this. This is from an Israeli tourist website. This is what they say in promoting one of their cities, Tel Aviv. Notice it. This is their description of why you should come to Israel. Tel Aviv gay pride has become one of the biggest events of the year in Tel Aviv. With the city's gay community coming out in force to ensure that they and the many visitors who come from overseas have a great time and firm up the city's reputation as the gay capital of the Middle East and perhaps one of the gay capitals of the world. I could go on and on for other descriptions and abominations, but the reality is this, modern-day Israel has changed very little from the time that God brought judgment on them. So let's not, let's not be deceived tonight. The nation of Israel as a whole is not what it needs to be, what it should be. And yet we know the day is coming when revival is going to hit Israel. That's going to be a great day. We read of it in Revelation, and yet understanding that's not where it is right now. Now, I would say there's certainly a many, you might even say a majority of Israelis who no doubt embrace their biblical heritage. Yet many of them only do it as long as it gives them the rights to the land. It keeps them in the land. And so many will say, oh yeah, see, look at the Bible. And the reality is they've rejected God in their hearts. They certainly rejected Jesus Christ. Others have come to embrace, and I think this is quite amazing, of the heresy that's come out of Israel. Other Jews have embraced this notion, this false teaching, that the state of Israel, the nation of Israel, is the Messiah. So the establishment of a state, 1948 and thereafter, that that state is really the prophesied Messiah. It isn't a person. It isn't a redeemer in that sense, but it's the state who's going to redeem the nation of Israel, and it's the state that is going to continue to free Israelis. Can you believe that? Could you imagine, especially our perspective as Americans, could you imagine putting all your eggs in one basket called the government? That's what they're saying. Do you understand? That's what they're saying. Hey, we're going to trust that the state is going to be our redeemer. And that's coming out of Israel among Jews, that false teaching. It's crazy, isn't it? It certainly bespeaks the fact of a nation that is still not right with God. And obviously there are many, the, the Orthodox Jews, many of them who still look to the sky awaiting the first arrival of their Messiah. They have certainly declined Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and they're still looking for him. So, okay, Pastor Andrew, what does that all prove? How is that contextually important to what we are studying here in Romans chapter 9? Well, the fact is simple, and what even Paul is getting at, few in Israel, even to this day, acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And what do we understand from reading the New Testament? Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And they have rejected their greatest blessing, and in doing so, 
my friend, they doomed themselves. Jew, Gentile, it does not matter. Him that believeth not is condemned already. And so Paul is bringing that really to bear. He's trying to help them to see, wait a second, stop claiming your lineage. Stop claiming just because you're a descendant of Abraham that you're going to be saved. Hey, stop claiming modern day you're going to church. Stop claiming because you're an American, everything's going to be hunky-dory and you're going to heaven. Stop claiming because you're a good person that you're saved. That's not how you are saved. You're saved through Jesus Christ. Faith in him. So understand what the, the, really the table that Paul is setting for the Jews. You see, most Jews only tolerate Christianity, Christians, in our view of the Scriptures because we are pro-Israel. And as long as we as a nation, as evangelicals, we, we are, uh, maintain a pro-Israel uh, viewpoint, we help them in the political realm, we offer protection in many ways, and honestly, from a selfish standpoint, they can then in turn uh, gain everything they'd like to economically and industrially and their worldly goals. But, but don't be confused, and let's understand even what Paul faced in that day, committed Jews even today, like in Christ's day and in, in, in Paul's day, they considered Christianity to be a perversion of the truth, an outright attack on the character of God. Paul is now trying to wed two worlds and by showing that this is the right way. This is the truth, what he is teaching and preaching here in, in Romans. You see, they viewed Christianity as a heretical form of the one true religion, which in their minds and their thought is Judaism. Furthermore, the fact that Christianity claims to embrace the New Testament, and it literally means, New Testament means new covenant, and as Christ even alluded to, and he alluded to New Testament too, and claiming, as Christians do, the new covenant in Christ nullifies the practices and ceremonies and traditions of the old covenant, the Jews find that to be a great affront, a great offense to them, that Christianity would claim such things. And then you add to that the insulting belief that Gentiles can now share equal standing before God and are able to be a part of the family of God without fulfilling the rigid requirements of Judaism, boy, you have yourself then some bitter and angry Jews. This, this is, how can that be right? That's not right. That can't, that can't be the And you, you see how Jews get very angry, certainly in Paul's day, Christ's day, and even today. To, to even entertain the thought that Gentiles can go directly to God, that they can share in God's grace and favor is absurd to the Orthodox Jew. It takes away from their heritage, they believe. To say that, then what is good is the temple, and what good is the Mosaic law, and, and all these years of heritage and lineage as a Jew. Well, if anybody can just cry out to God and he'll hear them to save them, what good is all this in their mind? It tarnishes everything that they hold up. And so we understand here is what Paul is fighting. Here's why Paul listed in verses 4 and 5. Listen, the Jews are blessed. They have much as God's chosen people. And yet, he's getting to the point. 
See, when you, you put yourself in their mindset, you, you understand why Saul was so intent before he became Paul. He was so intent with capturing Christians and putting them to death and carrying them away to prison because this, in his mind, was a, a, a heresy of the worst kind of heresy to, to belittle the ceremonies and the sacrifices, to, to put Gentiles on equal footing with Jews. How dare you? We understand why the religious leaders in Christ's day sought to kill him many days. They looked for him. we got to put this guy to death. This kind of stuff that he is teaching, this is detrimental. This is tearing down Judaism. It's an attack like no other. In fact, we would understand that they held Christianity as an attack on God, his character. An attack on Israel as a nation, its heritage. And the simple thought and reality that in their minds Christianity sought to denigrate and remove the promises to Abraham and the other patriarchs in the nations. They saw it as an attack on their way of life. Because my friend in the New Testament, the New Covenant, the fact is you, you don't need to offer sacrifices anymore. Jesus Christ was the one and done sacrifice. There's no need to do all that. There's no need to live in bondage to the Mosaic law. The reality is now in Christ, guess what? We, need to, we get to live in love in obedience to Jesus Christ. See, it turned everything upside down. And so for the Jews, in their mind, this teaching that Paul has been spouting ever since that crazy guy got saved on the road to Damascus, boy, this is heresy, and I don't even hear it, Paul. So that is the context of chapter 9. Paul's addressing Jews and says, listen, yes, we're blessed. Kinsmen, we're blessed. But oh my, we have a lot to learn. Uh, the dealings of God and what God's plan is. You see, for the Jew, when their world gets t- turned upside down, and in their minds, they are no longer the special people that they thought they were, and they use that as a means to approach God. And then you add to that, no longer is their law any important, the mosaic and the keeping and adherence and obedience to the law. Those two things were the only things that they claimed gave them approach to God. So what do they have left? Well, enter Paul. And Paul says, listen, this is what you need to approach God. You need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Applied to your account. Not just a Jew, but a Gentile also. See, in their minds, this new upstart religion was nothing more than an all-out attack on their nation, on God. And so, therefore, Paul had a steep hill to climb. What is he wishing for in verses 1 through 3? I want all of my countrymen to be saved. Could I ask you tonight? was a huge hurdle this was a steep hill to climb for him to convince them and help them to have their eyes open to the truth yet in these verses he is conveying that he was privileged privileged to have the revelation to aspects of the mystery of god's plan for salvation to both the jew and the greek to both the israeli and the gentile paul would later allude to what he was sharing here in this passage and other places when he penned a letter to a gentile church 
just a few years later. Hold your spot. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3, if you will, with me. Ephesians chapter number 3. Stay with me, and uh, we'll see a couple conclusions here that I think are uh, tremendous and that Paul was getting at. But we've kind of got to build the case. We've kind of understand what he is presenting for us to, to grasp. Notice in Ephesians chapter 3, notice verse number 1, Paul is speaking, he's talking to Gentiles, and he's helping them to understand the mystery of God concerning the gospel. For this cause, verse 1, Ephesians 3, for this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given to me to you word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto the, his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Now, friend, that is a powerful verse. Powerful. You and I join heirs with the chosen nation of Israel to form the church. Notice in verse 7. Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Verse 8, and that's where we'll stop. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. You see what he's saying? There's a wonderful reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's for all men. And it's through grace. It's in Jesus Christ. And he is now slowly but surely trying to reveal it, not only to Gentiles, but to the Jews. To open their minds and heart to the reality that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Redeemer. Just because you are a Jew does not make you part of the family of God. You have to be joint heirs with Christ. To be a child of God. He'll expound and he'll uh, give us more understanding of it. But I love this fact. He says what? Through Christ, you and I are privy to the unsearchable riches of God. And what a great truth. Here's the mystery that he's going to spell out for us. And in doing so, he's going to dispel all the worries, the concerns, the questions of the Jews, his kinsmen. But let me ask you this, okay? Getting back here in Romans to understand where he's going. Have you ever gotten off course? You were headed somewhere, you had a destination, and boy, you just kind of got turned around or you got turned sideways, and all of a sudden you realize, wow, we aren't even going the right direction. Just the other day, we were traveling somewhere, and I was following the GPS on my phone, and uh, it's hard to believe, but I outran the GPS. You ever do that? And it's taking you somewhere and so forth, and all of a sudden it says, turn right, 100 yards back there. I'm like, why didn't you tell me 100 yards back there? And we got completely turned around and, and tell me to turn right. There's no place to turn right. And then it finally caught up with itself, thanks to the great connection in the thumb of Michigan. Amen. And uh, I was supposed to turn back there. So now I get all turned around, have to turn. And, and like a good man does, we blame the GPS. Amen. It's the GPS's fault, right? Literally, we got off course. Why? Because the GPS wasn't working right. You didn't realize that here in this verse, that's literally what they're saying. Look at verse 6. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. You understand the, the word for none effect, the Greek word that's translated as that is, this means this, getting off course. It was used in that day of a ship that had gotten off course. 
So he's anticipating this question. He's like, okay, okay, wait, 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 Paul. If you're saying that all this is true and yet the, the Jews need to get saved, what happened? Did God get off course with his plan for Israel? Did their sin and disobedience, their failure, did it make God's plan get off course? Is God done with Israel? And obviously the answer is no way. Did it make it no effect? No, it didn't. And really, he, he's anticipating. It's not as though God got off course. Now, aren't you thankful tonight God doesn't get off course? You, know, you and I can mess up. Our GPS can mess us up. I'm thankful that God in his omnipotence and in his omniscience and his sovereignty, you and I can't knock God off his perfect plan. Uh, for all of mankind, for all of eternity, it's a great truth. Literally, though, he anticipated the Jews saying, if you're saying Israel is so bad spiritually, does Israel's failures in sin make God's promises no longer valid? See, some of us, and there are Christians today who would like to ask the same question about Israel. Look at that nation over there. They're embracing of, of homosexuality and they're embracing of all kinds of worldliness. It isn't a, it isn't a godly or a, a God-honoring nation. It is a secular state. God's done with Israel. No, he's not. Revelation's still coming, friend. And God will go to battle on behalf of Israel, yes, the nation, and many of them will experience the revival we've spoken of. See, God's not done, and nothing Israel can do is going to get them off course. And aren't you thankful that that reminds you and I that in being saved, we are once saved, always saved. You and I can't say something tomorrow that will cause us to lose our salvation. I can't do something to cause us to lose our place in the family of God. And man, what, what a wonderful truth that is. And it ought to move us to live for him to an even greater degree. He anticipates these questions. Is there fine print with God's promises where he's going to take away all those future promises for the nation? Have they caused as a nation God's plan for Israel to get off course like a ship blown off its course? Is that adoption he mentioned in verses 4 and 5? Is that adoption null and void now? No way. The fulfillments of God's unconditional promises to Israel that pertain to both the past and the future, they are not dependent, they are not contingent upon man's obedience and faithfulness, but rather they are dependent upon God's faithfulness. And boy, do we know how faithful God is, amen? See, God promised it to them many for many years, over many, many years, much time ago. He said this in Jeremiah thirty-two forty-two: For thus saith the Lord, like as I have brought all this great evil upon this people, so will I bring upon them all the good that I have promised them. God keeps his word. He's going to with Israel. And so Paul is reassuring them. But at the same time, he's kind of opening their eyes to a reality. Look at it. Roman number two, we put this. Not only does Israel have a privileged past, but Israel has a partitioned past. And we would have to say a partitioned present and a partitioned future. What do we mean by that? Well, Paul begins to describe for us the dichotomy, the, the separation, the division found even now within the nation of Israel. 
among those who call themselves Jews. It's, it's not a new concept. Because back in Romans chapter number uh, 2, we studied this, verses 25 through 29. Uh, he, he talks about, wait a minute, they're not all Jews who are Jews. And there's some who are, are circumcised physically, but there are those who are circumcised of the heart. In fact, verse 29, if you remember correctly, was the culminating verse. He says this, but he is a Jew. Here's the one that's really a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart. In the spirit, not in the letter of the law, whose praise is not of men, but of God. He's talking about the reality of faith in the heart, following after God in belief. And now Paul revisits it. He expands upon it, adding more to our understanding. In fact, he's appealing to the knowledge of his audience and taking them from what they do know to a concept of new understanding. See, Verse 6 shows uh, that Paul's presentation, he says what? Well, some, notice it, they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Now, a, a common response to that would be, huh? For they are not all of Israel who are of Israel. That doesn't make sense, Paul. What are, you, what, are you, what are you trying to say by that? Well, he's really splitting them up within the two groups, isn't he? I mean, he's breaking it down, saying there are Jews who are the physical descendancy of Israel, and there are those who are the spiritual descendancy of Israel. Now, we're just talking about Jews. We're not entering into the Gentiles yet. He's not bringing the Gentiles, you and I, to play. He's saying within the Jewish nation, there's really two groups. There's a great divide between them, a partition that separates them. And this is key to understanding prophetical uh, teachings and truth. Now you say, all right, what do you mean by that? Well, Paul anticipated that question. Because then he says, okay, you remember Abraham? That's like saying, you know, saying to a Jew, do you remember Abraham? It's saying like to a fish, do you remember how to swim? Jews certainly remember Abraham. Abraham's everything to them. Let me ask you this question. Okay, uh, who was Abraham's son? Isaac. Ishmael, right? Okay, we get that. And yet, the reality is, maybe somebody said it, you realize Abraham had eight sons. So you have Isaac, who's of Sarah. Then you have Ishmael, who is Hagar. Then it's Genesis chapter 25, verse 1. We are told he married a, a lady by the name of Keturah, and he had Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, and Midian, and Ishbak, and Shua. They liked A's. All his sons. Now, Paul is presenting for us just the reality of Isaac and Ishmael, but the fact is, listen, hey, every single one of these sons can claim to be from Abraham. They're of the flesh of Abraham. Wait a minute, Abraham, the one who, the, who God appeared to and said, I'm going to make a great nation of you? Yeah. So let's be more specific. If this is his family tree, and it seems like it's growing, um, who was the son of promise? Oh, that's more specific. And that's Isaac. We get that. The scripture is clear. That's Isaac. But wait a minute. Wasn't Ishmael Abraham's son too? Yes, he was his son by the flesh, but he is not the promised seed. Now, we get a lot here thrown at us that we have to wrap our minds around. But, but would you understand this? The Jews would have gotten this immediately. Because my friend, the Jews did not like the Ishmaelites. Those who descended from Ishmael, ah, they, they're not from Abraham. No, no, no. We claim Abraham. We get to claim Abraham. In fact, even today in the Middle East, there's fighting over who Abraham had or who as their patriarch. 
See, the Jews look at an Ishmaelite and say, ah, no, 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 no. And maybe a Midianite and a Zimranite. Okay, anyway. Um, they look at all those people. No, no, no. Abraham is ours to claim. So as Paul's writing this, they're saying, oh, yeah, we get that. Just because they came from Abraham doesn't mean they're of the seed of Abraham. So what appears to us to be a little confusing, a little odd, the fact is the Jews in that day, they understood it. They would have denied that an Ishmaelite was from Abraham or of the seed of Abraham. It's important because look at verse number 7. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. See, he's appealing to a Jew and his feelings against an Ishmaelite. They know that. And, and all these other people that came from these other sons, no, 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 they're not. A, in Isaac shall thy seed be called. What would we say? Well, Isaac was chosen, Ishmael, and these other sons were rejected. To the, to the Jews in that day, you could ask them if a descendant of Ishmael was like them of the seed of Abraham, and they would likely say no. But don't they have the blood of Abraham running through them? Yes. But verse 7 gives us the key. They are not of Isaac. See, Paul is appealing to that defining characteristic. That description that, that makes someone of the seed of Abraham. Because in that classification, they had to come from the lineage of Isaac. The Jews understood that. They accepted that thinking. They, they embraced it. That was their mindset. And so now it sets the groundwork for his statement in verse 8. Notice it. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. They'd be like, amen, amen, that's right. Because those Ishmaelites, they're children of the flesh, but they are not the children of God like we are. Notice what he does. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. And Paul is introducing this thought and this reality based upon what they already understand. So you see it on your outline. The fact is this, the children, as he writes in verse 8, the children of the flesh are not automatically children of God. It's a strong statement to give to the Jews who already thought they had one foot in heaven because they, thought they, or because they came from Isaac and Abraham. So understand the parallel thinking. Paul is appealing to their thinking. Okay, I am of Isaac, therefore I am a descendant of Abraham, therefore I'm a child of promise. So Paul's saying, okay, if in that case you are a, 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 a child of Abraham and yet the Israelite is a child of the flesh and you're saying that he's not a part there, let me share something greater with you. In that same line of thinking, let me help you to see this. He says, just because that you are a Jew... You might have the privileged past, that position, but that does not guarantee you of being in the spiritual family of God. So he's introducing a concept in verse number eight. He said, wait, 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 what do you mean by that? Because for the Jew, they thought, because I'm a descendant of Isaac and Abraham, I've got one foot in heaven already. And Paul's starting to, uh, not so fast. He's starting to reveal the truth of the gospel. You see, He's, as he's already presented, and he's trying to hammer home to the Jew. You want to be a part of the family of God? It isn't because you are a Jew. It is through faith. It's through faith. You say, well, Pastor Henry, where is that in the verse? Well, honestly, it's kind of right in front of us. Paul writes, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. These are the spiritual children of God, the Jews of faith. 
See, physically are the children of the promise through Isaac. They are. But spiritually, they have to be children of the promise through faith. How do we see that? How does that happen? Well, Paul already explained it previously in Romans. It's through faith. But notice this verse out of James chapter 2 and verse 23. Notice it. And the scripture was fulfilled, which said what? Abraham believed God. And it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Okay, let me draw it together and we'll be done. What did Abraham believe? Well, he believed God. What did God do? God gave him a promise. Genesis chapter 17 and other places. And even before that, hey, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And I'm going to make your seed multiply as the sand of the sea and the stars in the sky. And and it's going to, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. He believed God. He had faith in what God was saying. He had faith in the promise. And literally, it was imputed unto him for righteousness. We talked about this last week, and he is introducing this thought that it is a lineage of Jews in their false religion of Judaism that had become working to heaven, that had become something other than God intended, even the Mosaic law. The fact is, Paul is trying to shed some light on this lineage of faith. A lineage that knows no boundary of nation, ethnicity, color, skin, background, upbringing, or education. Though he's speaking specifically about Jewish believers and non-believers. It was a reality that he's setting the table and helping the Jews to understand that all may... Out of Abraham does not even the seed of Abraham for privileged position as God's chosen people. The Ishmaelite, you talk to him and say, hey, wait, 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 wait. No, listen, I am of Abraham. I've got the blood of Abraham flowing through my veins, just like that Israelite. I must be of the promise. And yet the reality teaching us the child of Isaac does not equal being the seed of promise for a justified. He's trying to correlate and open the minds. Wait a second. Just like you look at Ishmael and say, hey, Ishmael's not a descendant of Abraham. He doesn't, believe, belong, he doesn't deserve to be called the seed of Abraham. We alone can claim that because we're through Isaac. You know what Paul's saying? Hey, Jew, listen. Just because you claim to be of Abraham and to be a Jew of Isaac, it doesn't give you the right to call yourself the family of God. The only people who can say they're part of the family of God, those who have embraced Jesus Christ as their Savior. So can you imagine it? Everything they've believed, Paul is just stripping away little by little. What's a Jew going to argue? But wait a second, we are the chosen ones. God chose us. You know, reality is this. Now listen to me, listen to me very carefully. You and I are blessed to have grown. Exposed. Have 
exposed to God's Word. In that way, in God's sovereignty, we might say we were chosen, we were blessed to be an American. But I'll tell you, my friend, being close to God's Word, being an American, does not make you a Christian. Though you and I are in a privileged position to not grow up somewhere in, in Asia or, or the Middle East or somewhere, we really maybe barely have ever heard the gospel, if at all. My, we are in a privileged position, aren't we? But that doesn't mean that you and I are going to heaven. We're only going to heaven if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So understanding, whoa, there are some similarities here. As God's, because sometimes you and I can, we can be deceived by Satan to think we're something because we're, boy, we have the Bible, we're exposed, we grew up in church, and we're, we have, yeah, we do, we are blessed. But that doesn't make us a, a believer. It's only through Christ. And so Paul is slowly tearing it away, tearing it down so the Jews would open their eyes. What do we often say in witnessing? Before a person can get saved, they have to realize they are lost. And so Paul is helping Israel to realize, wait a second, friends. Yeah, you're part of the chosen nation. You're of Isaac. You're of Abraham. But you are lost unless you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's a great passage. We'll get more into it next week. Let me encourage you. A couple I want to mention as far as prayer requests are concerned. Right inside under health, I'd encourage you um, to pray for Wendy Tompkins. I think we got her in there. And uh, uh, anyway, Wendy Tompkins, she had surgery. Is healing from that. She's had some blood clots as results of that. And uh, Wendy Hazen, there she is under health needs of our friends and relatives. So pray for her healing for back surgery. She goes to see a surgeon tomorrow because she's had some blood clots and things like that. So pray for Wendy Hazen, especially ask you to pray for Melody McDowell. We've added her to the top there. She's having knee surgery on September 16th. Has some ligaments that need repair and things like that. So pray for that. And uh, she'll be out for three to six months. So pray everything to go well. And uh, just pray the Lord would encourage her and young Melody there. Also pray for Grace. And Grace McDowell, she'll be having an MRI tomorrow. Pray for that to go well. Lord, to give wisdom through that. Pray for Grace McDowell likewise. Melody McDowell and Grace McDowell, the Lord would undertake on their behalf. I should pray for Mike, a co-worker of Mark Quick. Mike, he's having thyroid surgery at Genesis on the 29th at 7.30 a.m. He's unsaved. So pray for Mike having a thyroid surgery coming up on the 29th. We pray for this co-worker of Mark uh, quick, pray for his salvation, too, as we pray for his uh, physical healing, for that surgery to go well. Ask your pray for Debbie Robinson's sister, Denise Sardou. Uh, she did have her chemo, but the cancer is still present. So pray for that. Pray for salvation, as we've been praying for Denise Sardou, for salvation, and that cancer is still present. So pray for her uh, there, and the uh, Lord would undertake there and give the doctors wisdom and them wisdom. Ask your pray for William Gorsuch. He's in a deal, uh, a good deal of back pain. So pray for William Gorsuch, back pain. The Lord would just touch and heal him. Pray for William Gorsuch. Speaking of the back, pray for Doug Stevens, and he's continuing to have those back issues. He has an MRI scheduled for Monday, and uh, pray that he can get into the specialist after that MRI to determine what needs to be done. So pray for Doug Stevens, MRI on Monday, and uh, pray for uh, the Lord just to give direction and guidance, and he'll be able to get into a specialist thereafter. I should pray for Mark Dalton.